Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel 28 through 29. And the last time we were in 1 Samuel, we saw that David's walk with the Lord hit a low point based on one word, fear. And that carries into this chapter. But David does rebound. By contrast, King Saul, no doubt, hits the lowest point in his life. But sadly, he doesn't rebound. And the one word is repent. Uh, The world looks at us Christians and says, oh, repentance, sin. It's really not a scary thing. It's really actually quite freeing to realize, to be confronted with our own sin and realize as people of God that we're going on the wrong way and to give that up to the Lord and, and be sorry and really try to make attempts to change our life, to turn around and turn towards God and away from our life. So it's really a good thing. Uh, otherwise, it puts it a, be- a believer in a double-minded kind of situation, which is, um, you know, James tells us that person's unstable in all their ways. So starting with verse 1, it says, Now it happened in those, those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war, to fight with Israel. And Ashish, who was the king, said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. And David said to Ashish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Ashish said to David, therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever, or like a bodyguard, or we can liken it to the SS in uh, Hitler's regiment. They were a group just to protect the Fuhrer. And in this situation, the Philistines, the king wanted a contingent to just protect him. And in some instances, with dictators from their own people at times, sad to say, But fear of King Saul drove David to spend a greater part of a year plus with the Philistines, and now he's in a predicament. So now the king of the Philistines is going to fight with David's countrymen. We're going to go fight Israel. So what does David do? Maybe deceive him? Where's the trust in the Lord issue? Probably he shouldn't have been there in the first place. And we may find at times as believers, we hit a low point, and there's places that we shouldn't be. And I believe if we've been a Christian all long enough, we can all say, yep, I remember that time. And it puts us in a predicament because we're not walking the way we should be walking. If the Philistines are a picture of sin and evil, and Israel is a picture of God's people, it shows through this Philistine incursion that evil never takes a vacation. It's always looking for an opportunity to make war and to try to take over. Verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah, in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. A few things are grouped together, probably for comparison. Number one, the good prophet Samuel had died. And what we see is that the spiritual situation in Israel at this time was poor. Two, King Saul had mediums and spiritists put out of the land. That's a good thing, but we'll find out it was only window dressing. Sometimes you can make an application of cultural Christianity. We do things for appearance, we do things for our peers, we do things for our church body, and we do appearances, but the heart's got to be right. It can't just be to make a window look pretty. Three, King Saul sees the Philistines gathered to battle, and he's afraid. Why? Because he rejected God, and the Holy Spirit left him. Now he's in trouble. 
I look at my life in the opposite of Saul's, where I grew up not knowing the Lord. I didn't have the Holy Spirit. There was fear at times. There was confusions. There was bad decisions. And then being a believer and having the Holy Spirit, I'd never go back. But Saul had the Holy Spirit, and he did things, and he continued in his way. And eventually the Bible says that the Spirit of God left him, a place that we never want to be. Four, King Saul goes to consult the Lord, and the Lord refuses to answer him. Too little, too late for Saul. That's a scary place to be, especially in times of trouble. We never want to get to a place where the Lord is not there when we call upon him. And we never have to be. I'm going to read something that's a little poignant in Proverbs. Proverbs 1, about 10 verses. Proverbs 1, 23. And God makes it very clear. He spells out what he expects. And he spells out the consequences for disobedience and for turning from him. Very simple. Proverbs 1, 23. He says, turn, this is God speaking, turn at my reproof. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my, they would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies." For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. God lays it out. There's no secret. There's no hidden um, knowledge, esoteric knowledge that we have to get from him, or we have to achieve some type of uh, nirvana to get to understand God. He says, I offer it freely, but it's your choice. Whatever you want to do with it. You know, if you reject it, it's not going to go well with you. If you accept me and turn from your ways, turn at my reproof, then you'll be successful. It couldn't be any clearer than that. However, King Saul's relationship was mostly through the prophet Samuel. He didn't have a relationship of his own with the Lord, and now Samuel's dead and he's in trouble. You know, and um, I look at this, and there are some that will maybe use a godly person as a crutch person in their life. And... They wing their relationship with God, but one day that person may not be anymore and we'll have to stand on our own. You know, we need to walk on our own and not have crutch people. Well, Samuel was a crutch person for Saul. Now, a little caveat to that as a new believer, they don't know anything. They read the Bible, God shows them a little bit by a little bit, and they, they need to grow and they need to take the milk of the word. And, and sometimes they have somebody, I know for me as a new believer, I don't know anything. I had faithful men in my life that helped to to bring me up, but eventually I had to learn to stand on my own. In Saul's case, he always figured, well, I have Samuel to count on, and wait till we see what he does later on. It's it's even worse. Just a little geography in verse 4, Mount Geboa in Shunem is in Manasseh, which is just west of the Jordan River. It's in Israel. And if we spoke about sin and evil before, the Philistines now are inside of Israel. They're inside of the kingdom. See, evil will always take ground in our lives if we let it. 
They came all the way in. Did they raid villages on the way? Did they steal stuff, plunder? We don't know. But I think that, again, if we've lived as believers long enough, we can see points in our lives where we let evil take too much ground. And it's right inside. It's right close to the heart. And now we're in trouble. What do we do? How do we get it out? You know, where do we go from here? Verse 6, King Saul inquired of the Lord. For those that may be feeling sorry for Saul, it doesn't say anywhere that he repented, changed his attitude, and changed his ways. It just said he inquired of the Lord. He was terrified of this impending battle with the Philistines, and he needed answers. But he didn't necessarily want a relationship with God. There's no indication of that. Verse 7. Here's where it gets really weird. Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on outer clothes, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Please conduct a seance for me, and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spirit is from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Verse 11, Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. So this is a medium, spiritist. She's going to conduct a seance. And it's very simple. You see them around today. It's someone, a medium, somebody in the middle, somebody who supposedly will get you to talk to your dead relatives. Uh, there's shows about it now. It's so out, out in the open, and God forbids it. Um, and here's the problem. A person who's a medium today or back then is either a fraud and they're pretending. They, they learn information about you. Some of these shows, apparently they found... Uh, one of the more popular ones, there's scouts that are part of the entourage, and they go out to the audience, and they ask a lot of questions. And then they feed it to the supposed medium guy who's going to come out and do the show. They feed him all this information. He selectively picks the person, supposedly randomly, and he's got all this information that the scout gave him. So that's a fraud. The other way this can happen is that they're actually contacting demons, and they have real information. Remember, the demons can see everything that's going on in the world. And they've been around for thousands of years. You know, they were the, there's these eternal beings. They will be eventually judged, but right now, they have free reign. And uh, they find things out about us all the time. So don't be surprised if you run into somebody and know things about you, but you better be careful, because they didn't get it from God. I would tell you this, that I've, as a believer, I haven't really run into any of these people, mediums, but... I'd like to have the opportunity one day, I would never go to their place and pay money, but if I run into one of them, I'm going to say, so let's see how good you are. Who am I? <laughs> What's my address? What's my social security number? You know, if they're a fraud, they're not going to know. If they feed me all the information, I'll know that they're working for the enemy. So how do I know or how do we know that, that contacting loved ones who've passed on are not from God? Because he forbids it. Leviticus 26 through 8. He forbids us having this supernatural knowledge at whim. I'm just going to go to somebody and get this information. He forbids it. Because he wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. He wants us to uh, contact him for everything, to have a relationship with him. Now, there are instances, supernaturally, which this is different, legitimate, is 
a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, or a prophecy. Every once in a while, God will give his people information that he wants them to have to share with other believers to edify the church. And it's, it's not for self-centered reasons because we're all here together to work as the body of Christ. And I, I don't have it every day, but every once in a while, someone will come up to me and I'll be able to know what they're going to say to me before it comes out of their lips. And I would have no other way to knowing except that the Lord provided it to me. It doesn't happen on a daily basis, but if you're a spiritual person, that God will give you information when he feels you need it. Or if you ever counsel someone and you think, gee, I, what do I, I don't have any degree, I don't have any schooling, and someone comes up to you and they're really struggling, and all of a sudden, after half an hour, you look back and go, wow, what did I say? And you've given this, them this great advice that you wouldn't have known on your own. God is good like that. But this is something, and today they do it, where uh, it's just self-centered. I want to contact my deceased loved ones. I want to know this. I want to know that. And God says, it's not for you to contact those that have departed. Now, we just read that King Saul put out, and he must have made a decree, he put out the mediums and the spiritists from the, the land. And the woman, the medium, confirms it because she's scared. She's like, why would you put me in this position? Remember, she doesn't know it's Saul. He disguises himself. He goes against his own law right, that he put out to the rest of the Israelites to just find his answer. So he goes from now window dressing to hypocrisy. You know, it's good for everybody else to follow the law, but I'm the king, so I'm going to do what I want. And I think if we can apply this to our life, hypocrisy is the worst thing. If you're truly a believer and you love the Lord, and, and sometimes we're called hypocrites unfairly, but there's times, happened to me, where I've been called a hypocrite and I owned it as a believer. It doesn't feel good and it's something you don't want to do because you try to set a good example. I mean... I remember years ago, the WWJD, what would Jesus do, bracelets were really big. Some people still wear them. I think they're a good thing. But if we're going to wear them and live a lifestyle that's completely against God's word, then that's hypocrisy. We're saying one thing, but doing something different. It's worse when it comes from the top. Politicians who may routinely break laws that you and I would be sent to jail for. Or police uh, violating laws that they would put other people in jail for. That's the worst of the worst. But even worse than that is when it happens in spiritual leadership. Now, in this situation, King Saul was a quasi-spiritual position. Remember, he's the king of Israel. They're a spiritual nation. So in a sense, he's a ministry leader. And it's even worse. My brother sends me texts about pastors, even in New Jersey. It's almost on a weekly basis. This one gets arrested or charged for this, the other thing. It's unbelievable. And that's the worst because these are the people we're supposed to look up to, teachers, you know, police, politicians, pastors, authority figures. Anyway, it's really odd that um, Saul wants to bring up Samuel because God won't answer him. That's very ironic. In other words, I want God to help me, but I don't want God. And I love it when the Wednesday night study coincides with the Sunday study. We've seen this in John 6. Jesus said, you follow me because of the miracles, because you got a free meal. You're not following me because you want everlasting life or you want anything to do with the Father. Following God for the wrong reason, and, and Saul was guilty of this. Right? Twelve. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle. 
And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down or prostrated himself. He bows down with his face to the ground. Now, some will ask, was this really Samuel? Was it an apparition? Was it a demon? I believe it definitely was Samuel, and I'll state my reasons in the next block. But I want to say this first. Again, tarot cards, spiritist mediums, it's very common in our society, and it's very accepted. You can go down a major highway and see some of these houses. We'll read your palm, we'll read your cards, you know, we'll read the tea leaves, whatever they're doing, but they're going to tell you some information that you couldn't normally know. And it's a shame that many will seek advice from a deceased loved one or from the demonic realm rather than build a relationship with God and be led by him every day. I have a funny story. (laughs) There was a place in the area, and the sign was out there, and the phone number was there. And I looked at the phone number, and I said, that's my phone number except one digit off. So sure enough, somebody calls my house because they dialed the wrong number, and they said, is this Madam so-and-so, whatever. And I said, who are you looking for? (laughs) So she tells me. And I said, oh, you're looking for that place on the road. And um, I started telling her about the Lord. Listen, you call my house. I'm going to tell you about the Lord. I said, this is what the Bible says. What you're doing is wrong. You're going to get yourself into trouble. If she's really authentic, just like the study I'm I'm doing now, it's not going to be good for you. So I tell her about the Lord and God and all this stuff. And she seems really, she sounds like a young woman. She sounds like she's really into it. And, you know, I talk to her and, and, and the conversation ends. A few minutes later, the phone rings again. It's her. Can I speak to Madam So-and-so? I said, didn't I just tell you not to call these people? (laughs) So now I'm rebuking her. (laughs) Listen, you call my house. I'm trying to do it because I love the woman. I don't even know her. But probably at that point after we hung up, she didn't call me back. She probably looked in the yellow pages. She wasn't going to take the chance again getting me. But I tried, you know. Verse 15. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, namely David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Certainly not good news. This is powerful. And Saul is having a discussion directly with the departed prophet and asking for help since the Lord has rejected him. You know, some do that today. They'll come to a pastor or an elder or a ministry leader and say, can you talk to God for me? Can you pray for me? And you show them that they can have a personal relationship with the Lord but for whatever reason, they don't have time or it's not their thing right now, but they want to kind of go through you. I mean, this is an extreme situation, of course. But Samuel does the right thing. And he basically says, common sense, if the Lord has rejected you, then I can't help you. 
Tragically, King Saul had many missed opportunities. And in verse 16, Samuel says, Why do you ask me when the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? Imagine hearing that. You would think that that would get him to, he bowed down his face to the ground because he saw Samuel. You would think that he would bow down with his face to the ground and beg Lord, the Lord for, you know, just be repentant. But that's not what he does. He falls apart instead. Verse 18. What are the main reasons? Well, because way back in the battle with Amalek, Saul was deceitful. He was purposely disobedient to the Lord. And he, he put forth basically his own plan. And it goes to show you how much God desires obedience in our lives. He says, I desire obedience over sacrifice. And Jesus, this is the best part. I mean, I love the Gospel of John. We're really going to have a great time. You know, we're still in chapter 6. I mean, I'm just taking it slow. I'm not rushing through the chapters because it's just a great gospel. But Jesus, and we're going to get to this, in John 14 says, if you truly love me, you will obey my word. A lot of people have an impression of Jesus that's just, you know, carefree about sin, don't worry about it, I'll just kind of wink and it'll be fine. He says, if you love me, You'll obey my word. God desires obedience from us. If we repent, he forgives. When we came to the Lord, what did we do? We repented. We said, my lifestyle is, is not edifying. It's, it's, it's away from you. I want to change and I want to turn towards you. I know I'm a sinner. I need salvation. That's repentance. Wow, I did that? Yeah, it's simple, isn't it? And it, it opened up the doors for you to have a relationship with your God. But there are some who, if they don't repent, and they keep rebelling against God, their sins pile up. And one day, same thing with Saul, their sins will testify against them. You see, there's a culture of Christianity today that tries to make its own version of Christianity, and it's not based on God's word. If you show them the Bible and you read scripture to them, you'll get, well, you're judging me. I didn't write this. <laughs> you know, I'm just telling you what the scripture said. Or... The emergent church, has, they say we need to have a discussion on the relevancy of God's word in the 21st century. What kind of garbage is that? You know what I'm saying? That's just recycled trash. It's garbage. God's word is always relevant. We're going to pick and choose what we decide is relevant and tell God, no, we like this part of the Bible, but you don't like that part. That's, it's all around us. There's versions of Christianity in this local area. No rules, no leadership, no problems, no consequences. If it feels good, do it. How do we know that this really was Samuel and not a hoax? Let's get down to the meat of this. Number one, I got four reasons here. Because the medium is just as shocked as anyone else in the room. <laughs> she's, she's shocked. And uh, everyone else is kind of like blown away by this Samuel coming up. Samuel, it was Samuel, not one of her familiar spirits, not one of her demon friends. And verse 13, not to make it too confusing, but they translate it to try to make its, its sense. But it says, and the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. The word is, I saw Elohim. So, I mean, there's something that she saw, which can be translated false gods. It can be used for the, name, for the general term of God. Uh, it's, it's a, it has a, a very small semantic range, but she saw something that she had never seen before. Uh, so again, it's translated spirit, but I think that there was, I think this vision blew her away because she was working on the wrong side. Two, the medium was tipped off that it was King Saul under disguise because she truly recognized Samuel the prophet. Three, 
Samuel spoke directly to King Saul and rebuked him, and it wasn't through a medium. Remember, it's the medium that conducts the seances, and they call the dead people up, and whether they're speaking to the demons or it's a fraud, they're the channel. You have to go through them to get to the loved one, and the loved one talks to them, and you know they're the ones controlling everything. In this situation, Samuel just summarily rebuked King Saul. Now, remember what, that I said that you can't truly contact your loved ones through this, these processes? How do we explain this? Well, God allowed Samuel to hotly rebuke King Saul. I mean, he just trounced him here. Uh, he wanted him to know how evil he has been. And the fourth reason is that the message was not a friendly message. And it wasn't furthering the demonic kingdom. It was furthering God's will. In essence, as if God was saying to Samuel, King Saul doesn't know me. He doesn't listen to me. He doesn't hear what I have to say. You tell him my will. I'm, I'm not even going to give him the courtesy of speaking to him directly. So, verse 19. I, I like to pick certain things out of the scripture that kind of, you know, blow me away. It says, moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, check this out, he says to Saul, you and your sons will be with me. Now Samuel's dead. He's in the realm of the dead. And this is a study, just to help you to, if, you, if I don't explain it in the next few seconds, you know, the way you really, un, to, for you to understand it, check out our Luke 16 study, where it spoke about Hades, and it spoke about the rich man and Lazarus, and, you know, the, uh, the Lazarus, they both die, and Lazarus goes to be in Abraham's bosom. Hades is like this, this realm of the dead, this compartment. And in the Old Testament, there was a Abraham and all the good people, the saints, but they couldn't be regularly in God's presence because Christ hadn't died for their sins yet. And then there's this great chasm, and on the other side is all those who were not saints and are going to be judged. Um, now, check this out. When Christ died, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth and then ascended, uh, Ephesians 4. And again, you can get this in Luke 16. What uh, Christ did was he freed those, and it wasn't a bad place. They were with Abraham. It was a good place. The one side is they're freed and they go up to be in God's presence because Christ had already died for their sins. The other side, they're still there. And what they're waiting for, not, a, not in a good way, is they're waiting for the great white throne judgment where God judges the dead, you know, the living and the dead. And he's going to pull them up and they're going to be judged. So if it's not bad now, it's going to be worse later. It is bad, but it's going to be worse. So when he says you're going to be with me, he doesn't necessarily mean in the same place, literally, but in the same general realm of the dead. Get it? So you're going to, you're going to die, so to speak. Verse 20. Then immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him and he heeded their voice. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Samuel and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. This is weird. <laughs> this is a very odd 
portion of scripture, but it's what happens when we're in sin. Things don't even make sense anymore. And especially in the Old Testament times, when you ate, you broke bread with someone, you became one with them. Listen, she might be being nice to him, but this woman is dealing with demonic uh, forces. So, you know, he's making himself one with her. The whole party there, all having a nice meal together, it's weird. King Saul is devastated, but he brought himself here. He may be sad, depressed, exhausted, the whole gamut, but again, no repentance. What do we see today? We see some that get to this place, and they're sad, and they're depressed, and they're exhausted, and they'll try everything. They'll whine about their situation, they'll consider themselves victims, but they won't do what God wants them to do, to repent and turn towards them. So don't let your emotions get the best of you. And don't get to this place. What starts to bring us to this place? Self-deception. A refusal to take personal responsibility for what we do wrong. There's an expression that says, if you're doing more work than the person that you're trying to help get right, if you want it more than they do, you're doing it wrong. I've been there, you know? You really want it for this person, but they just, they don't want it for themselves. And they have free will. And at that point, our influence stops and their sin starts to weary us and we may have to just break, break the connection for a while. I've been there many a times. Sad. How does this chapter end? Again, everybody's having a meal with the medium. Doesn't make any sense. When we stray from God's will, it may not show at first, but we will start to fall apart, become weak, and it'll be a gradual descent. One of the most godless people, Adolf Hitler, you know, he... Uh, in his last days was was a basket case. He was so far away from God's will that he just was a disheveled shell of a person. And he was not a young, he was not an old guy. Look at some of the great communist leaders. And I say great in the world's eyes. Same thing on their deathbeds, they were shells of men questioning what's gonna happen when they breathe their last. When you're so far away from God's will, that's, that's the only end in sight. Verse 29. This is a short uh, chapter here. Verse 1. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Ashish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Ashish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of King Saul of Israel? who has been with me these days or these years. And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him, so the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? So there's a little kerfuffle in the Philistine camp. Ashish thinks he can trust David and his men, wants them to be his personal bodyguard. Philistine princes, not so sure, and they all band together and say, put pressure on Ashish and say, it's not a good thing. In the heat of battle, he may turn to the other side and see his countrymen and fight against us, not good. A little geography here, and you can see the progression I like to go to the map and the Bible maps and see where everything is because it helps me in my mind to understand what's going on here. If we look at these two chapters, number one, the Philistines appear 
to start out at Shunem in Israel, probably as a scouting mission. If you follow military history, this makes sense. They're checking out the battlefield. They're looking at the sizing up the troops on the other side. Then they fall back to Aphek, which is Philistine territory. Why? To plan the battle, to get supplies, forces. And then three, they march to Jezreel, which is back in Israel, to battle the Israelites. Who's calling the shots here? Not Israel. It's the Philistines. King Saul's doing nothing about it. There's no confidence on the Israelite side. And the Philistines continue to, to taunt, to bully, and to just cross borders unchallenged. And again, that's what sin does to us. We become weaker. We become weaker spiritually, physically. And, um, you know, before we, we don't have any control of our lives or any of the people that are maybe controlling us outside of our lives. <clears throat> Verse 6. Then Ashish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me in the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have found, not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Then David said to Ashish, But what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? But Ashish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you, and as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. It's kind of neat how, um, because 29 was short, I lumped these two together, but it was really appropriate because there's a parallel. King Saul's at a low point. David's at a low point. He's hanging out with people he shouldn't be hanging out with. It's a weird situation. David wants to say with Ashish, but Ashish, Ashish has to let him go. In verse 8, David, speaking to Ashish, says, The Lord, my king. We don't know who he's talking about. Is he, is he talking about Ashish because he built a bond with him? Is he talking about Saul because that's who he really means and that's who his heart is, is disposed to? Is he talking about the Lord? You can make up any of the three depending on David's mindset at the time, but we don't know. The problem is David's resourcefulness has taken over where trust in God always was. There was a vacuum and his resourcefulness has taken over at this point. So it's difficult to discern David's intentions. I think David was confused himself. He should have let the situation go, but he ends up protesting. What do you mean I can't go into battle with you? He should have just left the situation alone. I will say this, that David and King Saul in both of these cha chapters have hit the bottom. I would say arguably worse with King Saul. And the title of tonight's message is When We Hit the Bottom. The difference between both men is this. David eventually overcomes while King Saul is overcome. Sounds similar, huge difference. Which do we want to be when we hit the bottom? Do we want to be overcomers? God always, like the, like the bumper sticker says, God always allows U-turns. Or do we want to be overcome? In Matthew 21, 44, Jesus says, whoever falls on this stone, referring to himself, will be broken. 
However, whomever it falls on will be ground to powder. Now, there's a contextual application here, but we can make a general application in when we fall, when we sin. The Lord's there to catch us, but he is the rock. And sometimes, metaphorically, when we fall on him and we're in sin, we break a few bones spiritually. But those bones can always mend and become stronger than they were before. However, he says, whom the stone falls on will be ground to powder. There's a difference between falling, sinning, messing up, and, you know, repenting and just, you know, there's a cycle sometimes in the Christian walk versus absolute rejection of the Lord. Whom the stone falls on will be ground to powder. That's not where we want to be. So what do we do? We can look at these men, but it would be tragic if we didn't make the application for our lives thousands of years later. This is God's word. It's applicable to us. What do we do when we hit the bottom? Do we stay in pity mode? Do we continue in the mire of the flesh? Do we blame others? Maybe when you go home tonight, you can search engine Neil Cavuto excuses. It's a three-minute clip of him saying, we're a country of excuse makers. It's great listening to him rant for three minutes about every excuse that he's heard. You know, um, it's my parents' fault. It's the, the speed limit signed by my house. That's why I get speeding tickets and my license is suspended. My teachers didn't like me. They gave me, I mean, just, he just, it's awesome. And I just, my wife and I were laughing listening to it. So check it out tonight. Excuse makers. The good news is this. God was merciful to David, even with all his flaws, and David had a good sense of repentance. And the truth is, God is also merciful to us. Right? We're his people. When we mess up, we repent. We move on. Saul, on the other hand, was the king of Israel, but he was also the king of excuses for why his life didn't turn out the way he wanted it to. Here's the truth. Everyone in this, this room, including me, we all fall down and we get hurt and we bang ourselves up. But it's what we do from there that defines us. It makes us who we are because we all fall down. Some of us will get up in different ways. Some of us will just lay and wallow in it. How we define this evening? Are we willing to take responsibility for the decisions we make? Are we willing to make excuses, blame others? The first will lead to restoration. The latter will lead to life filled with heartache and unfulfillment. And as we reflect back on these men, David made a choice, and we'll see that, and it's going to be awesome. And King Saul made a choice, and he died in ignominy. He died in, in shamefulness. And the question is, what choice will we make? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love your word. And I love it in so many reasons, but one reason is...